God damn you. It is a little strange that we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. Campus is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere. It's guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant, right face, left face, keep your mouth shut, private, oh, oh, over, over men without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. Go home. They want power, not equality. This is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church. We are meaning makers and storytellers. And the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that shape our lives. We need each other badly or goodly. We need each other. And we keep forgetting again and again and again that we are loved. And we say, no, I'm no good. No, I messed it all up. No, I feel so guilty. No, I feel so ashamed. We need each other. In the midst of this difficult, dark, and often violent world, we need to have a community of support to which we can call all people and be a community of hope. Hello, friends, and welcome to the opening. This is the first episode where we're going to be actually getting into a specific topic. You guys have no idea how long I wanted to do this. I have thought about this for years and it has just never been the right time. And I finally decided, you know what? I'm going to do it. It's still not the right time. It's actually 1230 in the morning. But I mean, when you've got five kids at the house, when are you going to do a podcast? It's it's basically impossible. So, yeah, it's 12.30 in the morning, and that's going to be the time when I can actually talk. My voice may get tired at times. I hope not. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to this journey with you. And so the way this is going to work, as I, as I mentioned in, my, in the previous episode, I'm going to spend the first part of each episode going over a particular uh, article that I've written that... Uh, most of them have been published. These first three have not. Uh, these were the th- three articles that I'd written prior to getting published, but I think they're really important for us to to set the the tone for moving forward. So anyway, in the um, so what we're gonna do is we'll, we'll read I'll read through an article that I wrote that's on my website rickpidcock.com and then, I'm going to be sharing some reflections. So it may have a little bit of an audiobook type feel at first when I'm reading the articles, and then I'm going to be sharing some reflections on what I've learned since then and, and what my perspectives are uh, since 
writing the article, as I've gotten feedback, and as I've had some more time to, to think about things. So in this particular episode, we're going to be reading an article that I wrote on February 29th, 2020, uh, called Mythical Deconstruction, and it was a response to an article that Alyssa Childers wrote for the Gospel Coalition. And uh, as you'll come to find out, I'm not a big fan of uh, what is being put out there, but this is a a, a rather interesting article that they had written about uh, Rhett and Link, some YouTube stars, and so I decided to deconstruct their deconstruction of deconstruction. of YouTubers who I admittedly had never heard of named Rhett and Link recently shared their deconversion stories. Now, I've never watched any of their videos other than the two videos about their personal stories, but with that said, there was much about their stories that resonated with me. Both of them grew up in conservative evangelical churches and served in the worship ministries of complementarian Calvinist churches in the Carolinas. If those terms are Christianese to you, feel free to be curious and explore them, but for me, Rhett and Link understood exactly where I have come from. Their story is not unique. It is, it's a very common story today where unsuspecting Christians begin to question young earth creationism, which leads to questioning the historicity of Adam and Eve, which creates questions regarding Paul's connection of Adam to Jesus, which may get shelved for a while. Then Noah's flood falls apart, which leads to questions about divine violence, which opens up an entire unsettling exploration of the Old Testament law, the conquest narratives, and hell. Eventually, the questions keep going until you get to the life of Jesus himself, and in the end, you're left wondering why the truth seems so hard to hold together. The point of this article is not to explore all of those questions, calm your angst, and give conservative evangelicals certainty that there's virtually nothing to see here. But I want to respond to an article that the Gospel Coalition just shared entitled, Let's Deconstruct a Deconversion Story, The Case of Rhett and Link. Alyssa Childers begins by sharing about her childhood obsession with a TV celebrity who left Christianity to become an agnostic. Then she shares a Brave New World quote about truth being lost in a sea of irrelevance to bridge the conversation to YouTubers Rhett and Link. My primary concern with Alyssa's article is that she is asserting a number of false assumptions. First, she falsely assumes that deconstructing Christians are immature. By describing Rhett and Link as, quote, engaging in zany stunts such as duct-taping themselves together, playing wedgie hangman, crushing glow sticks in a meat grinder, and flinging bags of dog feces at one another's faces, unquote, and their followers as Reddit and YouTube commenters, or shaken youth group kids, she's presenting Christians who are asking hard questions about their faith as immature. This could not be further from the truth. There's nothing wrong with Rhett and Link being comedians, and there are plenty of serious-minded theologians and scientists who do not engage in such activities that are asking their same questions. Both Rhett and Link recommended the writings of Francis Collins, who mapped the human genome, founded BioLogos, and is the director of the National Institutes of Health. Francis Collins believes in theistic evolution and denies a global flood. 
Many of the writers and speakers for BioLogos have a variety of beliefs regarding the nature of Scripture, yet they are all serious-minded believers. I am currently a student at Northern Seminary. My professors also accept modern science, hold to an inspired imperfection view of the Scriptures, would be considered to have deconstructed from the Gospel Coalition's version of Christianity, and yet are very serious about their faith. Next, she falsely assumes that deconstructing Christians are driven by LGBTQ affirmation. Alyssa says, quote, But as both Rhett and Link recounted, there was something brewing underneath the intellectual questions. They both felt a deep discomfort with biblical sexual ethics, which they perceived to, be, to oppress women and their LGBTQ plus friends, unquote. Here she begins asserting a motive that simply isn't true. Many of the most influential voices for deconstructing Christians, such as Brian Zond, Greg Boyd, Bruxy Cavey, Preston Sprinkle, David Finch, etc., are non-affirming of LGBTQ sexual relationships. Many progressive Christian seminaries that deconstructing Christians pursue training at still require their faculty to sign non-affirming pledges. Next, she falsely assumes that the deconstruction journey is quick and easy. Alyssa says, quote, how can two guys who make a living as YouTube personalities go from making possum corn dogs one day to throwing 2,000 years of Christian, Christian history under the bus the next? Why were so many people rattled and even persuaded by them? Unquote. If you listen to their stories, that's not at all what happened. Rhett and Link agonized over an ever-unfolding set of questions that caused marital stress and deep fears that had to be sorted through for many years. In fact, they took six years before they even said anything publicly about being agnostics. If you've ever read Deconstructing Christians on Twitter, you'll know how much maturity that would take for someone of their platform to not discuss it for that long. And perhaps the reason they're persuasive isn't because they're asking new questions, but because they're asking questions that many of us are already asking privately ourselves. Next, she falsely assumes that Rhett was dismissing the need to read conservative authors just by naming them. Alyssa says, quote, With the precision of a gifted lawyer, he laid out roadblocks to the objections he knew would follow his statements by naming several apologists such as Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, Tim Keller, and Ravi Zacharias. He knocked the legs out from under their arguments. There's a good chance the Christian kid who looks up Rhett and probably doesn't ever crack open his Bible will never read those authors now, unquote. Rhett never once said not to read those guys. He just said that he did, that their answers were not compelling, that there's no need to send him all of your conservative book recommendations, but that you're free to do so if you want to. Rhett promoted curiosity. Like Rhett, I have also found much of the writings of these men and others like them to be underwhelming. But if someone wants to read them for the next few years, that's totally fine. Rhett's video was also already an hour and 40 minutes long. He didn't have time to point-by-point point list the arguments for those authors. And if your youth group that you've pastored for years is threatened by an hour and 40-minute YouTube video because they never read their Bible, then perhaps you should be the one who starts asking questions about the strength of your message and the pastoring that you've been doing. Next, she falsely assumes that Rhett was accusing conservatives of having a profit motive. Alyssa says, quote, Then he skillfully planted a possible motive, money. 
he suggested that if all these apologists and theologians were to recant, were to recant their stories and change their opinions, their livelihoods would be at stake, unquote. I was once a five-point double predestination Calvinist who was fully committed to complementarianism and basically everything the Gospel Coalition puts out. But out of a season where I became aware of my wounds and was discipled toward healing for a year, I began to have some questions. But I suppressed those questions because I wanted to get hired as a worship pastor by a church. I had no profit motive. I just wanted to be able to provide an average income for my family while investing my life doing what I loved and felt called to. After I died to that dream, however, I felt free to ask the questions I had been suppressing. That's when my deconstruction, if you want to call it that, began. There are many pastors who are making thirty-five dollars to $45,000 who have no other training than ministry training who are asking these same questions privately. They aren't remaining silent about their questions or refusing to pursue them due to a profit motive. They're, they simply love their family and don't want to be fired, especially if they have virtually no training or experience for anything else. The fact that the livelihood of their family requires them to have the right answers prevents them from asking questions. That's what Rhett was referring to. Next, she falsely assumes that Rhett might have a profit motive. Alyssa asks, What would Rhett and Link stand to lose if they didn't capitulate to culture on an issue like same-sex marriage? How would it affect their revenue streams and net worth to remain faithful Christians in today's cultural climate? Unquote. I don't know. They seem to be doing just fine financially without even discussing spiritual things at all. By them bringing this out into the open, they risked losing a ton of fans, which could have cost them their livelihood. When Christians or former Christians come out as affirming of LGBTQ relationships, they lose their ministries, they lose many friends, and they lose many close family members. Conservative evangelicals need to stop promoting this idea that affirming LGBTQ relationships is a cave to cultural pressure to make your life easier. For those who have done so, they often lose virtually everything they loved or at least risk doing so. You can disagree with them, but don't dismiss them as taking the easy road. Next, she falsely assumes that Rhett offered no alternative. Alyssa says, quote, It's evident that Rhett has traded in one worldview for another, Christianity for postmodernity, with all its skepticism, denial of absolutes, and relativism, unquote. Actually, Rhett affirmed being present with your family, being open and curious for discovery, being open to hope, remaining open to God and faith, remaining faithful to your spouse, and continuing to live a life that loves your neighbor as yourself. He also said that he plans to share more things that he's journeyed toward in future episodes. In conclusion, I get it. For the Christian who believes that every word of the Bible is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and infallible, especially as they interpret it, and for the Christian who believes the stakes are eternal conscious torment in hell, asking questions is a scary proposition. Of course, I'm confused how such a Calvinistic organization like the Gospel Coalition who believes God predestined individuals to get saved and persevere to heaven could somehow feel threatened by, quote, a personality-driven culture in which two comedians can persuade Christians to rethink their faith in just three hours of video, unquote. But contradictions aside, I do understand how the fear of eternal conscious torment would cause grave concern over Rhett and Link's deconversion. 
That said, we now live in a world where Rhett and Link's questions cannot simply be dismissed like this article wants to. If you're a Christian who is having these questions, there are plenty of resources out there that will affirm the legitimacy of your questions and help you begin to work through them in a context that not only is sympathetic to Christianity, but is committed to Christianity. Feel free to reach out to me and and let me know some of your questions. I'd love to be able to point you to some resources that fit whatever journey you're currently on. In any case, I get the conservative angst, but don't assume that the conservative critique of deconstruction stories is assumption-free. So going back and reading this article that I had written last February, February of 2020, actually. So it's been a it's been a while. Um, there are a couple things that stood out to me that I just wanted to to add to, and and one is this something I've noticed as I've seen these conservative evangelicals critique those who've deconstructed is that they they often try to paint those who have deconstructed their faith or are in a deconstruction process as shallow, as driven by social media. Like we saw this in the the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast where they they brought in Josh Harris and in one of the episodes and who had written the I Kiss Dating Goodbye book and, and Josh Harris is uh you know he's on social media, and they tried to they tried to pit those who have or pair those who have decon- who are deconstructing some aspects of Christian hierarchy in with Josh Harris, and they tried to make it out like, oh, it's just you know they're just sharing these little social media posts, and like like it's just you know some kind of um, little fad thing that's happening here that's just very shallow. Um, even the one of the more recent articles by Josh Butler on the Gospel Coalition had a similar critique of the social media type stuff. And and so I just think that that's something that we need to realize. When they're, when they're trying to pin everybody who is asking questions as these shallow social media people, they don't, they're not being honest with the reality that we're looking at archaeological data, we're looking at scientific data across many different disciplines. We're looking at uh, data about how ancient people told stories. So there are a lot of questions that we have that are legitimate. And these are not simply some, you know, sharing a little shallow meme that somehow makes, reveals the fact that we were never truly Christian. These are are very serious questions that that need to be dealt with uh, because the data simply is not aligning with what we were told in the conservative environments that we grew up in. So that's one thing. The next thing I wanted to address is this LGBTQ fear thing, because I get this from a lot, a lot of both conservative and moderate egalitarians. So the conservatives very often in these articles, you'll you'll hear them say, well, if you accept women in ministry, if you accept women preaching, then you're going to have to accept LGBTQ people. Or if you if you start to question inerrancy, you're going to have to accept LGBTQ people. And so it's like it's like the ultimate boogeyman. You know, don't you you can't ask these questions because of this down the road. It eventually goes there 
to LGBTQ affirmation. And and yet, on the other hand, I, I know some moderate egalitarians, like like some that I mentioned in, in the article and in those circles, who they believe in women preachers, and they'll 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 hear that critique from the conservatives, and they'll say, "Oh no, you know, just because you accept a woman being a priest or you know being able to preach or pastor, that doesn't mean that you'll all of a sudden accept LGBTQ people." And and I think that they're not they're not realizing that these a lot of the the complement the gender. Uh, the gender stereotypes and the gender-based rules that even um, people who are affirming of women in ministry, uh, they will hold to in a very complementarian way when it comes to LGBTQ people. They still base it off of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. They still have a very similar argumentation. And so I think that some of the conservative angst there is legitimate. Uh you know whether that is something to actually see as problematic. Um, that I don't believe so. But but the conservative idea that once you start messing with these gender separations, then suddenly you know someday that will lead to LGBTQ affirmation. I think there is something that conservatives have there that uh, is from their perspective a legitimate concern. Um, however, I don't think it's a legitimate concern. Ultimately, um, because uh, I think that we need to not be so afraid of LGBTQ people, and and we need to be accepting of them. So, um, basically, it's a big boogeyman for people who are on the conservative side as well as on the moderate egalitarian side. Another thing I noticed is this this concept of personal story. Uh, this isn't something that, that she really uh, got into uh, that uh, that I'm noticing as much here. But but another thing I'm noticing just in these as as more of these critiquing deconstructing people are articles are coming out. They're often critiquing deconstructing people as uh, as basing it on their personal stories or starting with their personal story as opposed to starting with the Bible. Like, um, you know, as if your personal story is something that doesn't really matter, it's, it's tainted by feeling and perspective, and it's, it's about your heart, uh, which can't be trusted, which is depraved, and the Bible is objective, and, and this revelation handed to us by God. But again, um, I don't think they're, one, I don't think they're being honest about what the Bible is, you know? Go to go to someone who was an Israelite slave in Egypt in the story of Exodus and tell them that per, your personal story doesn't matter, that somehow that doesn't give you a perspective. You know, I think I think that the, the a slave in Egypt, their personal story, their perspective under the boot of empire and hierarchy, gives them an insight to how hierarchy and power works. And, and Egypt coming along and saying, oh, no, personal story doesn't matter. Well, of course Egypt's going to say that because they don't want the personal story of those who they've enslaved and, um, and, and belittled to be something to consider. And, and so what I'm saying is that the Bible itself starts with personal story. The Bible itself 
brings out personal stories to show what it's like on the underside of empire and with the wound of exile. And so I think personal story matters. And, and I think it matters in this conversation, in these conversations, especially because we've been where these conservative evangelicals are. I know their theology like the back of my hand. I believed it. I read all their books. I taught it myself. I was fully on board. They've never really been where we're at. You know, some of them, like Alyssa, may have asked some questions here and there. They may have dipped their toe into some of the questions we've asked, but none of them have really been where we are. And so I think that that gives us a perspective that needs to be uh, needs to be taken seriously. Uh, one thing I will say, though, is that in her article, at least she linked to their content. One thing I've noticed is that in a lot of these articles by conservative evangelicals, they often will talk about deconstructing Christians or former, you know, ex-evangelicals, and they'll link, but when but they don't link to their material so much. They'll link to other critiques of the deconstructing people or the ex-evangelicals, and so even though I don't think Alyssa uh, understands those who have deconstructed even though I think she totally mischaracterized them, at least she linked to their work. And so to me, that's a positive, something that stood out to me about her article that I hadn't noticed, but uh, that I've noticed has been absent in a lot of these articles. So I wanted to just point that out. So where would I like to see us open up from here? I think there's just so much potential here. Like, if we could get over our fear of one another and, and through our personal stories, get to know the wonders that each of us have, that, that each of us had when we were children, the, the wounds that came into our lives that, that we began to suppress and, and to... Um, we, we lacked an awareness growing up and, and into early adulthood of how those wounds were affecting our wonders and affecting the ways we saw the world. If we could begin to see one another and to appreciate one another, perhaps we could begin to have some empathy and compassion for one another. I think that could really begin to change our world. We could begin to truly love ourselves and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll begin to see our neighbor in ourselves and see ourselves in our neighbor. And and then, you know, for each of us, we all have different wonders. There may be some of us who want to pursue our wonder through astrophysics or others who want to pursue it in archaeology or others who want to pursue it in art or whatever it might be, politics, like there are so many ways that we can all pursue our wonders and in, in a great variety of, of ways that will not only resonate with ourselves and will create a, a wholeness within ourselves 
but will also create a better world for one another. And and so what if, you know, what if we realize that we actually do need each other? That and we could allow archaeologists to dig without theological fear. That we could allow astrophysicists to look at the stars and explore this expanding cosmos without theological fear? What if we could allow the poets to begin to name the mystery that we all feel in our hearts, this infinite mystery that is drawing us together, that is evolving us forward and and expanding us and, and creating this relationship between us that is that is deep and mysterious and complex what if we could allow them to begin to name that without theological fear i think that the world could really become a more beautiful and holistic place and so speaking of one of those groups of people astrophysicists what does astrophysics have to do with how I had hoped churches would respond to the COVID-19 pandemic? And how did that turn out? That's what we're going to be covering in our next episode of The Opening. I don't think that the church has integrity to speak any good news at all until the church actually understands the reality that It is living and has crafted bad news in public policy. It has established theological foundations for oppression that have lived throughout the times and only changed shape over the generations, but has not been repented of. Bad theology always produces diminished psychology. Diminished psychology produces dysfunctional sociology. Dysfunctional sociology always produces oppressive anthropology, and then they always produce oppressive economics and ideologies. So it all flows from bad theology. Your notion of God is wrong or flawed. Your notion of self and others and power is wrong. Thank you for listening to The Opening Podcast with Rick Pitcock. The Opening is a podcast that deconstructs the power dynamics of religious hierarchies and opens us up to healthy relationship. For more information about today's episode, please check out rickpitcock.com and follow on social media at Rick Pitcock.